Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are starting a brand new series entitled Glory, and that's a word you don't hear very often outside the church, maybe in sports, you know, they misuse it there. But uh, what is glory? First of all, well, when we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about his character, his attributes, his nature. It's the way that he... He demonstrates who he is. It's, it's his radiance. It's this way of connecting with us and, and relating to us. And so it's important for us to know God's glory and, and to see it uh, when, it, when he shows it. Now, uh, today, I want to take you to a passage that I think is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so if you would, grab your Bible, grab your Bible app, whatever you're using, head over to Exodus chapter 34 this morning. We're actually going to be in this verse, this, this passage, for the next several weeks. And, and it'll make more sense as we get going here this morning. Uh, but you're going to want to become very familiar with this passage uh, now, before I get going, let me just tell you, uh, Ask Anything is up and going. So if you have any questions, that phone number is going to stay at the bottom of the screen. So if you have questions uh, throughout this message, you can text those to us. If we don't get the pastors up here at the end of the, the message to share with you some of those answers, we will text you back. So one way or another, you're going to get an answer. So make sure that you keep that in mind as we go through uh, these messages. Uh, now, when I was growing up, my parents used to take us to county fairs, you know, carnivals, things like that. And usually there would be somebody there that would be sitting out front. They would have a big easel and you could pay them money to draw your picture or you and some friends, they could draw your pictures, right? You remember these? They were called caricatures. And there were these funny uh, pictures that would over-exaggerate all kinds of things and under-exaggerate certain things. And, and uh, my wife is our branding communications uh, person here at the church. And, and a couple years ago, she decided to send all four of the pastor's pictures off to a caricature artist. And this is what we ended up with. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. I don't know why she did it. She's using it for some other stuff. But now that we have Pastor Miguel on staff, I can't wait to get his sent off and see what his comes back as. Uh, but the reason we love these caricatures is certain characteristics are over-exaggerated in order to make it uh, comical or um, you could say grotesque even. Uh, but it's, it's kind of interesting how it just uh, oh, you know, blows up certain things, minimizes others, and they exaggerate uh, physical features, and they're still recognizable. Like You can tell who that is. But it's just pretty funny to look at. And I was laughing at it because like my ears, right? Uh, pretty amazing. Those are pretty accurate. Um, the beard on Ryan, the, the eyes and teeth of Mike, and the jawline of Tim and his round head. And, and just they had so much fun with this. And yet in that, uh, over-exaggerated some things, but they, they minimized, like, look at our necks. Like, I don't think those necks would even hold those heads up, right? Now, when it comes to caricatures of ourselves, they're, they're pretty funny and they're fun to play with. But a caricature of God, on the other hand, is not really funny. Uh, when we're exaggerating one of his attributes, we're distorting his, his glory, uh, who he is. Um, we, we create a God that is not really God. 
Like we over-exaggerate certain attributes that we like or we minimize the ones that we don't like. And what we end up doing is we, we distort this view of God. And, and that type of, of God that we, we create can easily be dismissed. Um, it's not funny at all when it comes to God. Now, if you're one of those and, and maybe you've overemphasized certain things and, and haven't paid attention to any others, you've distorted who God really is, uh, you're going to struggle in life. Those of you that portray God as only this angry and demanding judge, you're going to be easily lured away by somebody who's emphasizing mercy. Those of you that are are looking at God as this kind-hearted grandfather, you're going to reject him as soon as you get into a situation in life when you really need justice. Uh, Those of you that see God as an intellectual idea instead of this caring, loving being, which is what he is, uh, you're going to find another idea more appealing someday, and you're going to walk away from God. Those of you that have made God into your best friend or your buddy, um, you're going to leave him behind when you find a human friend that's more to your liking. This is the way this works. This is why it's important that we don't create a caricature of God's glory, of his characteristics. And we need to avoid portraying God as only having those attributes that you and I favor, those things that we like, and, and kind of push away the things that we don't like. We have to worship all of God, not just certain aspects of God. Let me ask you right now where you sit before we even get into this series. If you were going to draw God, how would he look? I know it's kind of a tough question. And so let me, let me say it a different way. If you were going to just describe God, how would you describe God? Because I think that would kind of show you what you're emphasizing, maybe overemphasizing, and the things that you don't like and you've kind of pushed down. I think describing God, that's, that's kind of a daunting task, but... Here is what's interesting, is our text that we're going to, and we're going to spend the next few weeks in, is incredible because God in this text testifies to himself. He describes who he is. He describes himself. So we don't have to come up with our own description. God does it for us. Take a look at this in Exodus chapter 34. It says, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Here's, here's what's interesting, is I know that even now, that as I read through that, we were all doing this. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Oh, I don't like that. Wait a minute, what does he mean by that? I struggle with that. And this is what we have to be very careful of. God is declaring exactly who he is. And, and I love uh, the fact that it starts off with this, and this is where we're going to stay today. I just want to start taking this in bite-sized pieces, and we're going to work our way through this text over the next few weeks. But today, I want us to focus on this one. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. This is how he started off. And I think there's reasons for it. God starts off by saying, I want you to know who I am. I'm going to declare who I am. I am a God of compassion and mercy. And in order to really, really get, I think, how stunning this is, The fact that he would start with this, we have to go clear back to the beginning of the Bible. 
And what I want to do very quickly, I don't do this very often, but we're going to do a 30,000 foot view. We're going to kind of skip the surface of the Bible and just talk about kind of the history of God's people through the Bible up until this point in hopes that we would understand why this is so stunning, why this is so Profound. You go clear back to Genesis chapter 1, 1. God creates the universe. He creates everything in it. He creates the garden. He places man and woman in the garden. And the reason he does that is because he wants an eternal relationship with his creation. He creates them in his own image. Man and woman. They're different than all of, all of the rest of creation. And he wants, he desires a relationship with them. So much so that he would come in the cool of the day and he would walk with them. That's the type of fellowship that they had with Jesus Christ. And yet in that moment, if you know the story, you know what happened, right? They choose sin instead of God. They turn their backs on him. Uh, they, they leave the garden. Now, God could have just ended it right there, but he didn't because he's a God of compassion and mercy. He still desires this relationship with his, his bearer, his image bearers, and so... Uh, they leave the garden, and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And it doesn't take very long for Cain to become jealous of Abel and kill his brother. Does God wipe him off the face of the earth at that moment? Does he say, look, cut that out, or I'm going to pull the car over right now? No, he doesn't. Um, because he's a God of compassion and mercy. And what's a shame is as you continue to read the first five chapters, you realize that this is the progression. It's, it's a constant dissension into evil for mankind. Like we're not getting any better. We're getting worse. And even to the point where in Genesis 6, it says this, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So does he wipe out mankind at that point? No, because he's a God of compassion and mercy. He finds this one person, Noah, and it says about Noah in Genesis chapter 6, Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. This is how much God desires it. He says, you know what? I'm going to start over with you, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he has him build an ark, and he puts his whole family on there. And even after the flood and the, and the ark comes to rest on dry ground, they exit the ark. It doesn't take very long when you read the scriptures. It's almost sickening how fast they go right back to evil again. And this, this dissension into evil just continues. It picks up where it left off, and it keeps going. And they continue in their weakness, and they want to be like God. And so they, they say, hey, let's gather together in a city. Uh, by the time we get to chapter 11, it says, and they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. They wanted to be like God. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. And he's like, what are you doing? I told you to go throughout the earth and multiply. And you're not doing that. You're doing the opposite of this. You're disobeying everything I've instructed you. And so he introduces all these different languages and confuses them. They scatter across the globe like he told them to do in the first place. Uh, we call it the Tower of Babel. And then by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, we run into a guy by the name of Abram. And God chooses Abram to continue his covenant with. And he says, look, I know mankind has not been doing what I've called them to do, but I'm going to start over with you. And if you'll obey me, 
If you'll leave this country and go to the country that I'm going to show you to, I've got a land for you. I've got a promised land, and I want to take you to it. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name famous, and I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars, and I'm I'm going to bless you, not to bless you, but to bless the entire world because I want the entire world to know who I am so that they might turn back to me through you. And what ends up happening is he creates a covenant with Abraham, and he even tells him this in Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as what? Righteous because of his what? His faith. It's all God wanted. Relationship with his people. Just believe in me. Trust in me. Follow me. Obey me. And I'll take care of the rest. And he begins to show himself through Abram and through his family. And yet the land in which they're living is corrupt. All the people around them are corrupt. And does God wipe them all off the face of the earth? No. It says in Scripture that he desires that no one should perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants them to come to him. And so he continues to work. But there's this one area, Sodom and Gomorrah, that he said, you know what? That thing is so evil, I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth. And Abram steps in because he knows his nephew's living close to it. And he says, hey, God, why would you wipe that city off if there's righteous people in there? Um, what if there's 50 righteous people? Will you still destroy it? And you know what God says? No, I won't destroy it if there's 50 people because I'm a God of compassion and mercy. And then Abram knows there's not 50 righteous people in that city, so he continues to bargain. And he gets him all the way down to 10 people. If you can just find 10 people, will you wipe it off? And God says, no, I won't wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah if there's only 10 righteous people. Why? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy. And yet, you know the story. There wasn't any righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he wipes it off the face of the earth. He changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarah's name to, uh, Sarai's name to Sarah, and he blesses them in their old age with a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac goes on to have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Um, Jacob is... Uh, the younger, and he steals his brother's birthright, and he runs off to the east. And you'd think God would be going, what in the world? Again, we're going to do this again? But yet God is a God of compassion and mercy. And he remains true to his covenant. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons, and he moves back to Canaan, and he brings all of his sons, and these 12 sons will eventually represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The 11th son, his name is Joseph, and he's kind of a cocky little guy showing off his, his coat of many colors, and his brothers get jealous and angry with him, and they sell him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And an amazing um, several chapters to end the book of Genesis, you're following the life of Joseph. And at every turn, it seems like this is it, like he's done, he's done for, and yet God protects him time and time again. Why? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy. Because he has a plan to rescue his people. What was his plan? Well, Uh, Toward the end of Genesis, he's in a position where he gets to interpret the king's dream. And and because he interprets it, because God gives him the interpretation, he rises to the second in command in all of Egypt. Well, his brothers come from Canaan because they're starving. It's during a famine and they come to Egypt. And God ends up using that whole situation to redeem his people, to save his people. And they end up settling in Egypt. Now, by the time you get to the book of Exodus... There's been a 400-year gap. God has been silent, but yet he's continued 
to bless his people tremendously. So much so, in fact, that they're multiplying and they're thriving that Pharaoh's afraid of them. And so Pharaoh enslaves them. He starts wiping out all of their male babies. He's doing everything that he can to take God's blessing off of his own people. And yet in this moment, God's people are crying out to God because of the oppression. And so God, because he is a God of compassion and mercy, responds. And he picks a guy by the name of Moses, who, by the way, had murdered somebody. And he sends him back to rescue his people out of Egypt. And you might know the story. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And and Pharaoh says, no. And he says, no, several times. And you end up with 10 plagues. And God does these amazing miracles to show his people who he is and that he will rescue them because he's a God of compassion and mercy, even though they've turned their backs on him. And finally, by the time we get to the end, Pharaoh and all of his people are like, go, just leave. It doesn't matter. Just get out of town. Here's all of our our jewelry, our gold. Just leave. And they're giving them all this stuff as they're leaving. Well, they leave. And you would think in that moment that the people would be like, God is who he says he is. And there's nothing that can can get us to turn our backs on God. And yet, all it takes is just um, a sea. By the time they get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh has changed his mind. He sends his army after him. They're bearing down on them. They come up on the sea. They look like they're trapped. And what do they do? Instead of crying out to the God who just did these 10 plagues, these amazing miracles to free them, they turn on God and they turn on Moses. And you would think God would be like, fine. You want to be that way? Just let Pharaoh have them. But he doesn't. He rescues them. He parts the Red Sea and they go across on dry ground and the Egyptian army goes in after him and God closes up the sea and wipes out their enemy. And in this moment, you'd go, finally, this is going to do it. Like they're finally going to put their trust and faith in God. I'm sure of it now. Because who wouldn't after something like that? And all it takes is one chapter. And what we find is that people are grumbling against God again. Why? Because they don't have enough water. Would you lead us out here in the wilderness just so we and our children, our livestock, could, you know, die of thirst? Is that what you did? Does God strike him off the face of the earth? No. Why? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy. And he opens up 12 springs, the best tasting water they've ever had. Is that the end of it? No. The next chapter, they're complaining because they don't have food. And so God literally feeds them out of his hand. Manna is what it's called. It's this white, flaky substance that's on the ground every morning. And he tells them, go collect what you need for the day, but no more because if you try to save it overnight, it'll be rotten by the next day. And why does he do that? Because God is more interested in them believing in him. But they put their faith in him. Trust me for your daily needs. I'll take care of you. You're my people. I promised a covenant to you. I'm a God of compassion and mercy, and I'll take care of you. And yet they still turn on him. They find themselves in the middle of the wilderness, and they're not soldiers. They're, they've been slaves for 400 years. And Amalek and his soldiers decide, hey, we're going to go take all that Egyptian gold away from them. This is easy pickings. And they start bearing down. They start to attack God's people. And what does Moses do? Moses tells Joshua, grab the men, go out and fight. I'll go up, and I'll intercede for us before God. And how does he do that? He raises his arms. As long as he's on top of this hill with his arms up, they're winning the battle. It's almost like a form of worship, right? God, we're dependent upon you for our success. But as soon as he gets tired and his arms drop, they start losing. 
And so Aaron and Ur, they run up on top of the hill. They help hold his arms up. And it says that God brought about a great victory that day. God protected his people. Even though they had turned their backs on him time and time and time again. Why? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy. Finally, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 19, we arrive at the base of Mount Sinai or or Mount Horeb. This is where they're going to spend an entire year because God wants them to camp out. He wants to give them instructions. He wants to prepare them for moving into the promised land. He wants to give them all of his attributes so that they know how they are supposed to live so that they might reflect him to the rest of the world. Moses goes on top of the hill, and the first thing that he's given is the Ten Commandments. Uh, You might know them. If you don't, the first four are all about our relationship with God. The last six are a relationship with each other, with other people around us. It's interesting because later on, Jesus would give us the great commandments, summing these two up, love God, love others, right? And yet Moses comes down off the mountain, and he reads all of this to the people. And in chapter 24, 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will what? We will obey. We will obey. Finally, they got it, right? We're on the right track. They're going to obey. They're going to place their faith and trust in God and no one else, right? Moses goes back up onto the hill. He goes clear to the top of the mountain to receive some more instruction. And while he's up there, guess what happens? Um, They don't obey. They melt their gold down. They create a golden calf. They begin to worship. They have an orgy in front of it. I mean, it's just a mess. They violate most of the Ten Commandments right off the bat. Like, especially the first two. Honor God. Don't have any idols. And they've broken them right away. And God looks down and sees all this going on. He finally, you think he's finally going to give up on this compassion and mercy thing. He calls these people in the valley, he calls them Moses' people, not his own people. It's the first time he does that. They're no longer my people. They're your people. You need to go check, down, check on them. And Moses realizes we're in trouble. And he goes down into the valley, and he, I, I love this story. If you ever want some good reading during a lunch break, go read this one, because he grinds up the golden calf, and he makes them all drink it, which is ingenious, because where do you think that's going to come out, Right? And what he's essentially doing is, hey, this is what I think of your idol. This is how much your idol means. And then Moses goes back up on the hill, and he intercedes for the people. And because God is a God of compassion and mercy, he doesn't wipe them out. He continues to give them some more instruction. And it's in this moment that God testifies to himself. It's in this moment, on the tail end of this golden calf, where God self-reveals to Moses who he is. And we just read it. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I love this chapter 6. This is where we're going to hang today. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. It's, it's the most famous passage in Scripture. It's quoted over 20 times throughout the Bible. You'll see it come up over and over again. Why? Because it's something we desperately need. We need God's compassion and his mercy. Notice he doesn't start with anger 
He he doesn't start with wrath. He starts with his mercy-filled attributes. God didn't give Moses a vision of power. He gave him a vision of love. And clearly God wants to emphasize his great compassion and mercy, even as they face this this incident with the golden calf, even after after coming through this, this idolatry, God is emphasizing his compassion and his mercy. It's, it's easy, I think, sometimes to read through this and, and read these attributes as though they're a menu and we get to pick and choose what we want. But I think it's important that we stop at each one and we really ponder and wonder with gratitude what these attributes are and what they mean to us. And that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. And, and so what I want us to do today is I want us to really, really dive into this idea of compassion and mercy. See, I think both of these are so important for us, especially when we go out to meet other people's needs. Both of these need to be in operation. Compassion compels us to to the one in need, and I think it's mercy that actually meets the need. Jesus tells us that we need to love our enemies and forgive those who hate us, and, and that really is compassion. He also tells us to forgive those who have harmed us or hurt us or to forgive our enemies. That's mercy in that moment. Now, these words, um, we read it in English, but in the original Hebrew, um, rahum and hamin, they're, they're two different words. That, they're incredible. It, and it, it's actually almost poetic when you read it in the Hebrew. Um, I, I love these words because they spell out exactly what God is trying to get across. Now, the first word, rahum, is actually this, this word that's tied to the Hebrew word for womb. And I think God did this literally. He wanted them to know exactly what he was talking about when he was talking about compassion. Uh, This word is tied to this Hebrew word womb for a reason because God is saying in this moment, my compassion for you is like that of a mother for a newborn child. It's it's this idea that as a mother of a newborn child, the mother is never going to turn her back on that child. Even if it's crying, even if it's sick. If you can't comfort it, she's going to stay with it. And as that child grows and, and even does things and disobeys and does stuff that's wrong, it might discipline it, but that will never change the love that the mother has for the child. And this is what God is saying to each and every one of us. I am a God of compassion. I love you like a mother loves her newborn child. Uh, this word has, is so rich. And, and I think for some of you that are in here today, um, this is the word for you. Like, this is why you came in here today. You needed to hear that God is a God of compassion because you've gotten to a place in your life where you think that you've done something, you've been someplace, that God has, has all of a sudden decided that you're not worthy anymore. You think that God has turned his back on you, like he somehow loves you less because of what's happened in your life. And you need to know that God says, no, I'm a God of compassion I'm a God of compassion and mercy. And Jesus, later on, would become God's physical compassion. He would would live a life that was perfect. And and all through his life, God would show compassion for those who um, are poor, the least of these, those who are widows and orphans. He, He would show compassion to everyone, and even to the point sometimes where he would get physically ill because he would see them as lost sheep without a shepherd. Like the physical, he would just get twisted up inside because he had so much compassion for them. And I think one of the signs that we are children of God is that we have that same compassion for the world around us, for those who are far from God, for those who are hurting. Our desire to see them come to God, to to come to faith in Jesus Christ should compel us 
We should have Jesus' kind of compassion in our lives. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, he said, you must be compassionate just as your heavenly Father is compassionate. Now, you can see why compassion, I think, is the first word that God uses to describe himself in this self-revelation to Moses. Now, as his image bears, you and I, when we turn our backs on God, because of God's love, not because we're so awesome, but because of his own love, he's compelled to reach out with compassion and mercy to us every time. Now, this mercy aspect is interesting because usually we, def- we define mercy as this idea that um, it's not receiving something that we deserve, meaning punishment. We know that we've all sinned and we're all deserving of death, and yet uh, through Jesus Christ, when we receive him as Lord and Savior, we receive God's mercy. He has already died our death for us on the cross. And yet, when you take a look at this, this Hebrew word that they use for mercy, it, it goes a little bit deeper. It usually refers to a gift that's given out of delight and with favor. So God delights in giving us mercy. He desires to give us mercy. He wants us to turn back, and he gives us every opportunity to do that. Why did he not wipe each and every generation off the face of the earth? Because of mercy. Why doesn't he wipe us off the face of the earth right now? Let's be honest. We're reading through the Old Testament like they're doing something wrong. And yet when you look at our world today and what's happening in our society today, why does God put up with that? Why am I even here? Let's, let's talk individually. Think about all the things you've done in your lifetime. The sins and the wrongs. Why, why did he allow me to live through that? Because he desired to extend mercy to me. It was his favor to extend mercy to you. He wanted to do that. And this mercy is so desired in Scripture that just in the book of Psalms, we see it come up over 40 times. The authors are crying out for mercy. Uh, Ephesians said that our God is rich in mercy. And I think the sheer fact that we have this, this text in Exodus chapter 34 is it's proof that we serve a God of mercy. As we went through the story, you realize this is the second trip that Moses makes up to the top of the mountain. And it's on the tail end of the golden calf. Um, The people had made a covenant with God. Yes, we will do everything that you tell us to do. We will obey. And yet Moses goes up the mountain and what do they do? They break the covenant. Moses goes down and takes care of business. Um, They had given up on this God that they couldn't see, and they decided to make one that they could, and they they fashioned a golden calf. The covenant that God made with them no longer existed. They exchanged this love and this mercy and this compassionate God for one made of gold. Um, The covenant that God made with them um, comes up, part of it in chapter 19. It says, now if you will what? Obey me and keep my covenant. That's all he asks. Just obey me and keep my covenant. You will be my own special treasure from among all peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What's he want? He wants us to obey. Place our faith in him, to follow him. That's it. And he'll take care of the rest. But instead of resting And the value of God and his attributes and his glory, the people became restless and they created their own God. They exchanged the glory of this invisible God for the glory of one that they crafted with their own hands. 
And you and I, unfortunately, I, I think we do that many times. Sometimes on a daily basis. We don't obey what we know we should be doing. We, we know what the Word says, and we're not following it. We decide to do what our heart desires instead. And so it's so easy to point a finger sometimes at what we read in Scripture, but yet so often we're doing it ourselves, and we've got to be very careful about that. How, how are you doing in obeying God's commands and making Him the center of your life? These Israelites that we read about, they were unbelieving at the Red Sea. They grumbled against God in the wilderness about water and about food. They, they rebelled when they went out and fashioned a golden calf. And it could have ended God's patience. And I think uh, when you read through the text, you kind of feel like he was getting close because he called them a stiff-necked people. Your people, you better go do something about them. And, and Moses, I'm just going to take care of them. I'll start over with you. That's what he says. And Moses appeals to him because he's a God of compassion and mercy. And God says, all right, we'll continue. We'll continue on. But here in in Exodus chapter 34, we're back on that mountain again, awaiting God's revelation. And in that, the people have not been destroyed. And God begins to say who he is. He begins to reveal who he is. And he starts with compassion and mercy. And I think the sheer fact that that text is in Scripture is proof that we have a God of mercy. We have proof of it. I think if it was up to you or if it was up to me, we would just wipe them off the face of the earth. We'd be done with them. How many chances am I going to give you? Nope, that's it. We're done. And yet God delights in extending his mercy to his people. Now, my question is this. How is God compassionate and merciful? How is how is he compassionate and merciful? Well, we've seen it all through Scripture. But I, I think it continues on because 1,400 years later, after they come down off the mountain, even after mankind has continued to sin against God and turn their backs, and, and we've continued this dissension into evil, even up until today, God would go ahead and send his son, son whom he loved, his one and only son, who would come and walk this earth and live a perfect life. And make no mistake about it, we have a God that understands everything that we go through. He was here in flesh. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to weep over a loss. He knows what it's like to to experience pain. And yet he lived a perfect life, and he would give his life at the cross so that you and I, those sinful people, could be made right with God. Even though we've turned our backs on him time and time again, he would extend us compassion and mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. And not only for this life, but he would rise again from the grave. He would hollow out the grave so that we can extend that into eternity and spend all of eternity with God. The God of compassion and mercy allows us to come into a relationship with him, even as broken and as messed up as we are. You want to talk about compassion and mercy. And when we receive him as Lord and Savior, we're filled with his Holy Spirit, and we get to have the same type of fellowship with him that was lost. We get to have a relationship with our creator, God. And in that moment, this God of compassion and mercy calls us, his people, to exemplify those same attributes in our lives. As God's been compassionate and merciful to us, we're called to show that same type of compassion and mercy to the world around us. Actually, according to 
Psalm 82, God instructs us to give justice to the poor and the orphan, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, rescue the poor and helpless, deliver them from the grasp of evil people. Do you know why? Because we're supposed to be people of compassion and mercy. Mercy and compassion are rooted in the very character of God. God is a God of compassion and mercy. God said it. The word commands it. The wisdom that we see in Scripture teaches all about it. The prophets encouraged it. Psalms applauded it. And yet, we know that the fullest extent of God's compassion and mercy was displayed in Jesus Christ. In his life and in his work on the cross... And it's offered to us. And when we receive Jesus Christ, God expects that same kind of compassion and mercy to flow in and through us to the world around us. If we say that we are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, then God's attributes should be evident in our lives. But I'll be honest with you, this is one I struggle with. I'm not very compassionate. And I don't have a whole lot of mercy. And as I've gotten married and had kids and now grandkids, I'm having to learn that I need more compassion and more mercy. And you know where I'm finding it? Not within myself, but in the realization of how much compassion and mercy that God has extended to me. And when you start to come face to face with that and you embrace how much compassion and mercy God has extended to you, you can't help yourself but to extend it to the world around you. God is compassionate and merciful. And as we experience his compassion, his mercy, we should be compassionate and merciful as well. I want to pray for that for all of us. Would you join me in that? Heavenly Father, we come to you right now as your people. And God, we we thank you as we dive into Exodus 34 here that you gave us this text, first of all, to describe yourself so that we're not making caricatures of you picking and choosing what attributes we like and which ones we don't. But, Lord, we know who you say you are. And, Lord, this morning as we dwelt upon compassion and mercy, I pray that you're just opening our hearts and minds to how compassionate and merciful you are. God, I pray that that realization over this next week would change us, would cause us to be people that are more compassionate and merciful, people that look more and more like you, that act more and more like you, And Lord, I pray that you would use that to draw the world around us closer to you, whether it's friends at school or at work or family members. Lord, I pray that we would see your compassion and mercy um, working in and through us this week. God, we open ourselves up to that. We pray that you would do your work in us through your Holy Spirit. Change us and mold us and shape us into people that look more and more like you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people agreed and said, Amen.